You're watching Channel 37, WHXN, New Salem. It's a celebration of infinite possibilities on tonight's Channel 37's Midnight Movie Show. First, desperate aliens test humans to find someone who can come to their aid. It's this island Earth. Then, desperate aliens test humans to find someone who can come to their aid. It's the last starfighter. Hello and welcome to Channel 37's Midnight Movie Show. I am Dan, and with me are Dave. Hello! Mike. Hello. And Will. Greetings, Starfighter. <laughs> and we will be getting to that in just a moment, but first... The two of you are beginning a strange journey. A journey that no Earth people have ever undertaken before. Universal International presents the most startling, the most imaginative and suspenseful science fiction drama ever brought to the screen. You'll marvel at the superior intelligence that unleashes its deadly ray. Or can kidnap an airplane in flight. They're pulling us up. Prisoners hurtling through endless space, speeding toward the unearthly furies of a planet gone mad. See sights never before dreamed by man. The battle between guided meteors and deadly rays. They're gonna hit us! They're gonna hit us! A planet doomed to destruction. while captive Earth people fight for their lives. It is indeed typical that you Earth people refuse to believe in the superiority of any world but your own. Run, Ruth, run! Dave, you came to what did you come to us with today? Uh, today I have brought this island Earth. Okay. And uh what made you decide to talk about this one? Well, I mean, we've been kind of bouncing around the world of genres of late. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it'd be nice to go back to a good old-fashioned, squarely in the definition of B-movie. Mm -hmm. Sort of like 1950s science fiction, slightly overwrought, <laughs> but you'd have definitely watched this at a drive-through. Uh, yeah, so I, I just thought like not that not that I'm complaining about anything else we've watched, but I just thought like let, 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 let's throw like a good old-fashioned sort of flying saucers and ray guns B movie in there for a for a palate cleanser before we yeah. get before we get to whatever crazy shit Will suggests next. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, would you mind taking us through the movie then? I, I certainly will. So this, this Island Earth is the uh, the story of man's man, <laughs> nuclear <laughs> physicist, jet pilot, Cal, <laughs> Dr. Cal Meacham, as he's working on the science that will create the push-button age. <laughs> That's a, and... Uh, <laughs> He takes his he takes the jet fighter he's borrowed from Lockheed Martin for a spin, hot dogs it hot dogs the tower like Maverick in Top Gun, 
before having an engine failure and then being rescued by a mysterious green ray, mm-hmm. which is extremely nebbish assistance. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's, uh, um, like telling him about, and the other thing he he tells him about was the fact that he uh, he asked for some new condensers, which were apparently these kind of car battery sized pieces of scientific equipment, and instead of being sent more gigantic um, condensers, he's been sent these tiny um, sort of glass bead valve looking things, and they test them and they find, oh look, they they do exactly the same job as the big capacitors, if not even better. Uh, they end up uh, tracing where it came from, and they are sent a big a big catalogue full of parts and instructions to build something called an interocitor. <laughs> so they order all the parts, start putting it together, and successfully build their interocitor, which is this kind of like um, big console machine with a inverted triangular screen. And once they've finished it, they are contacted by Exeter, a man with a very normal forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Who says, uh, c- congratulations, Mitchum has passed the test and he wants him to uh, become part of a, a institute for science where um, sort of Exeter is ga- gathering together great minds together to um, work on world peace. So Cal, being a man up for a challenge, goes, yeah, sure, why not? So gets on the, uh, the mysterious one-seater plane that flies itself, uh, flies to the compound where he meets Dr. Ruth Adams, who is somebody who he may, may have had a relationship with in the past. Um, Ruth is a, a initially sort of like uh, makes out like she doesn't know who he is. So at this institute, there's lots of uh, international scientists from around the world. Exeter says they he's brought all these minds together to work on technologies to bring about world peace. But Dr. Meacham is slightly suspicious because what the only people they've been that have been brought there are people who work in the field of nuclear physics. There's no chemists or biologists or anything like that there. So he starts talking to Ruth and one of her and one of the other colleagues, Dr. Steve Deadmeat, as they start <laughs> to uh, <laughs> as, as they start to unravel the uh, what's going on. The reason that uh, Steve and Ruth have been careful of Cal is because. Um, they have essentially what is a, a brainwashing machine for making people more compliant. And they were worried he was given the treatment, but that's not the case. The three of them decide to get to the bottom of what's going on and try to sneak Cal out of the compound with enough information that he can go to somebody in authority and go, yeah, all these dudes with really weird foreheads that are asking us to make nuclear shit. <laughs> Meanwhile, Exeter is reporting to uh, his superiors so, and they're saying they've been pressing him for time, needing needing him to do more, you know, move things along quickly. Uh, Exeter's not a big fan of using the brainwasher, the Braino Wash three thousand on on people because he says it stifles their creativity. But his assistant Brack loves that shit. <laughs> so <laughs> while uh, Cal, Ruth, and Steve uh, decide to try and like uh, get away in a car, Brack starts like zapping at them for funsies. And uh, Exeter's told that the timetable's moved up and that like, if Meacham and Ruth have kind of made breakthroughs, they need to be brought with them to complete their work. Uh, Ruth and Cal manage to sort of jump out of the car, but Steve gets blown to smithereens. Uh, eventually, they try to escape from an aircraft, but it's taken aboard the flying saucer. And uh, Exeter explains that they are from the planet Metaluna, whose ultraviolet radiation 
battery around their planet is dying, and that's why they've been recruiting kind of scientific minds to try and protect it. He takes them back to Metaluna after processing their bodies so they can um, survive the pressures of the you know, the atmospheric pressure of their planet. And it turns out that Metaluna is at war with another planet whose name temporarily escapes me. It's not really important. Um, but basically, that this other planet has been hurling meteorites and rocks and stuff at them for decades, and it's just absolutely destroying their atmosphere. They meet with the leaders of Metaluna, and they say that uh, once they've stabilised the planet enough to get everybody off it, they're going to go and settle Earth. And so, oh, we want, Exodus says, we want to peacefully coexist with your people. And then Exodus boss goes, yes, but of course, we will be the superior beings. <laughs> <laughs> to which Cal is like, taste my fist, old man! <laughs> <laughs> And decides he's having none of that, so him and Ruth uh, decide they're going to escape her. Metaluna takes another um, pounding from the uh, asteroids and meteorites being showered upon their atmosphere. Exton uh, helps them, so they they escape in the flying saucer. Uh, one of the there's also some mutants, which are these big, giant, brained insectoid things, which are roaming around, and one of those gets loose on the um, the flying saucer while they're having their bodies converted. There's a bit of a scrap. Exeter's wounded. Uh, Metaluna is destroyed. It becomes a sun. Uh, Exeter drops everybody uh, back home uh, via the airplane that he, he kidnapped. And then while lying to them, Exeter lies to them and says he's going to explore the galaxy, but Meacham immediately sees through it and says, you've got no power in your ship. You're not going anywhere, son. And so they go back to Earth and Exeter basically... Uh, destroys his ship in a massive fireball and it hits the sea. And because the ship is on fire, the film is over. Right. (laughs) Very nice. Um, So a two-part question. Is this anybody's first time seeing it? And is this anybody's first time seeing it not from Mystery Science Theater 3000? (laughs) Mike? Yes to both. But yes to both. Okay. Yeah. This was my first time seeing it on its own. Uh, Ditto. Yeah. Okay. I will say I've seen clips of the MST3K movie, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have known this was the movie inside the movie mm-hmm. had y'all not said as much when this was being pitched. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, so, Dave, do you, I mean, you know, you picked it. I'm assuming that that this is a movie you enjoy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I think I may have, I can't remember where I saw it. I think it may have been uh, uh, years and years ago, like on the weekends, Channel 4 would do sort of like a classic sci fi movies um, run. So it was things like this, Forbidden Planet, um, sort of yeah, a lot of the, like the 50s science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I watched it and sort of obviously it's a bit silly, mm-hmm. but I kind of really liked what it was doing. And really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, years ago we kind of I bought this box set. Um, there's a DVD box set of like a series of these kind of films. So there's like there's like this, uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man, um, the thing from another world. Uh, I think them is part of it as well. But yeah, there's a. It was like a box set of fifty science fiction mm-hmm. movies, and so and this. The fact that this film was in it was a big part of me getting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm watching it this time around. It's been a while since I've watched it. 
which is another reason why I suggested it, because it kind of gave me another reason to kind of go back and give it a watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Again, it's, I mean, it's silly and it takes itself too seriously, but it's, it kind of, that's kind of what makes it work. Like, <laughs> I mean, Rex Reason, if ever there was a, like, a, like a, an actor's name which sounds more ridiculous than the character he's playing. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Rex Reason is kind of like, if there was a like, if there was a platonic ideal for heroes in these this kind of film, it's Rex Reason. Mm-hmm. Like square jaws, clearly sort of muscular as hell beneath the the very serious scientist tweed suit he's wearing, and like him and sort of Ruth really are the kind of quintessential B movie couple. Mm-hmm. And yes, <laughs> the, the, the Metaludans all have a very specific look of the kind of high forehead, white hair. But like the the thing is, not every like it does look silly that they all like that and nobody's called them on it. But then people do call them on it. Like the like, the moment Cal is there, it's just like, right, where are these guys from exactly? Because <laughs> <laughs> because they all they all look really similar and it's really strange. <laughs> I love the, the our the musician Mozart. <laughs> I love where the you know they're they're kind of conspiring you know say you know what the hell's going on here and the professor comes up to them like you know with these <laughs> these these drawings that he's done if you've noticed they've got these giant friends it's like well thank you for writing this down because otherwise we wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> He can draw giant foreheads, but he can't fix the side of a freaking boat. boat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, they did. I suppose they did did say it was part of um, uh, that was part of the evidence they were going to be sort of taking back to the government. But like, if you're just going to go like, look at these weird fellas, look at them, (laughs) (laughs) look at that weird bit in their heads. Just imagine someone in the government going, well, you know, I mean. I mean, yes, it's higher than you'd expect, but I'm not sure that's entirely negative <laughs> in life. You should see Phil from accounts. I think he's got one in his left hand. That, that's weird. <laughs> <huh? laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, like, I think the effects in this look really good mm. for the time. And I, I really like the, the design of the interrupter device is really is really unique, and I think it's been referenced in a lot of things. I'm pretty sure Joe Dante's put one of these out in like in one of his at least one of his films. Mm. Um yeah the flying saucer stuff looks really good and the kind of like the laser ray stuff. And even like the, the mutants, I mean, yes, again, with modern eyes, they look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But I have seen way worse in in movies of this type. But like the like this feels like a like like the higher end of the uh of the sci-fi B movie tier. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, Mike, how about yourself? What did you, you think about this? As someone who's doing his second complete rewatch of classic Doctor Who, I can't complain about how these mutants look. <laughs> <laughs> you had a couple extra bucks than the Beeb did, so good on you. <laughs> you know, but along those lines, I really, really dug the special effects in this. Mm-hmm. I think it was when the spacecraft went into the planetoid or whatever it was. I, I think that was the moment. And it's like just everything that was going on in the background. I was like, man, they put money into this. Like it's, it really, I didn't expect it to look like, you know, paper plates on strings or anything like that. I didn't, but that is the stereotype of this era of sci-fi. So when I saw how much 
attention they were putting into that, it really had my attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I find really fascinating about this era of science fiction, and you see it in the early days of comics, especially Marvel, is the action scientist man. You know, yes. your your Reed Richards, your Hank Pims, your Tony Starks, right? And it's like that is such a weird thing we were trying to do in movies back then is the scientist hero, you know, and this guy flies a jet, do you know? Um, so I was I was into that. I mean, I, I could definitely see me putting this one back on at some point, you know, just to enjoy it a little more deeply, you know, like not sitting there trying to take notes and whatnot. So just really just watch it but yeah yeah i was into this and i i thank dave for bringing it to the table because i don't think i ever would have i mean i hate to say it but kind of based on the title i probably wouldn't have ever watched it even <laughs> though this title is like tos star trek right yeah. <laughs> like oh yeah is... no, it, it's got barely anything like it's got barely anything to do at all with the actual plot right. and, it, and, and it, it, it is evocative of nothing Right. Yeah. Yeah. But th- this is definitely in a 1950s sci-fi novel title, or as I said, a TOS title or something, but whatever, you know, that's what sci-fi was at the time. So yeah. Yeah. I was into it. And I am right in thinking that was the professor, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. I thought so, but I was, I, I looked it up and it's, it looked like him, but I didn't click the link to see that uh, mm-hmm. it was him. So yeah, there we go. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and yourself, Will. So yeah, like I said a few moments ago, my I, my first time watching this film was as Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. And, you know, when I watched it that way, like, it was like, okay, cool. You know, it's a it's a really cheesy film, but, you know, hey, it has it. It looks good. Mm-hmm. Like, they definitely did choose like one of the a really good looking film to do for the movie. And. I mean, obviously, like if Universal is bankrolling the film, of course, you're going to select the Universal movie as opposed to like Manos, the Hands of Fate. Mm -hmm. God, just imagine Manos, the Hands of Fate getting a freaking theatrical release. Anyway, back to the point. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, no. And then I'm watching the like the first time, like the a virgin watching of the film. And I'll be perfectly honest they cut 20 minutes of the film for mystery science Theater 3000, the movie. I'm not sure if it's better with those 20 minutes there, because like the, all the footage they cut is like the front half of the film when they are in the movie theater, not movie theater, when they're at like the house mm-hmm. and there's so much of that part of the film. It's like, it's literally where are they getting to the fireworks factory? Yeah. Like <laughs> it just was constantly like, okay, cool. You're going to talk about leaving the house. But you're not going to actually do anything. And okay, now you're leaving the house. Oh, and now you're just kind of rambling. And now you're okay, cool. You're we're getting to another planet finally. And okay, yeah, everyone knows they're aliens. It's a cheesy film. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's cheesy enough to be like totally memorable outside of how nice it looks, though. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it is like definitely one of the best like 50s um, sci-fi films though I can ever remember seeing like just from a production standpoint. And obviously it's like memorable enough that people like people reference it to this day in other works like the Exeter shows up in so many freaking films. Mm-hmm. The 
the mutant shows up is referenced in like countless works to the point where it's actually a freaking it shows up randomly in the Looney Tunes back in action movie but with a Dalek. That's yeah, that's that's a joke. That's like yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm of two minds on it. I think it's great as as an episode of Mystery Science Three Three Thousand on mm-hmm. its own. I'm like ten minutes, ten minutes less, and this would have been perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of there with, I mean, as as much as everybody's kind of along a spectrum here, I'm kind of there with everybody. Um, It looks so good. It really does. It's it's one of those movies where in the 50s where they were kind of starting to try to say, let's let's make let's take let's take this a little more seriously than we sometimes do. You know, let's throw a little money because this actually wasn't a picture like this for its time was this was a big production and um yeah it it shows it it's a gorgeous looking movie you know it, it, this is like right up there again with forbidden planet and some of the stuff that george powell would be doing in a couple of years you know like they definitely w- sat down and said we're going to make a movie that's not going to just be you know the kids matinee goofy monster flick like yourself will i had very little experience with this movie outside of mystery science theater and um you can definitely tell why they chose it it's first of all it's not a bad movie it's very cheesy definitely it's definitely got moments that are, are kind of goofy and we'll get into those but at the end of the day it's a good movie and it's definitely the sort of thing that you know if you are introducing the concept of making fun of movies to people that aren't used to that this is a good way to go with it because it's really not a bad movie. Um, and I will admit it took me about half the movie before I was able to just kind of watch it and not be thinking of the callbacks, you know, like not be thinking of the riffs that are going on throughout this movie, <laughs> you know? just, which is doubly hard because from a riffing standpoint, this Island Earth is like one of the best things that Mystery Science Theater ever did. Like the sketches aren't great in the in the movie, but the the actual riffing on the movie is it's some of the smartest, funniest work they ever did on Mystery Science Theater. So it's very hard to kind of separate, you know, oh, I'm in one of these boxes, find me. You know, <laughs> like it's kind of you know, uh it's very hard to to separate that out. But once I was able to do it. And just kind of enjoy this movie on its own. I had a really good time with it. I did. That said, it is hard to kind of like once you once it's pointed out to you that Cal Meacham does nothing in this movie. Zero things. Nothing. He does nothing in this movie. <laughs> this That's movie, not true. He punches somebody. He punches somebody. <laughs> that is the sum total of Cal Meacham's contribution to the story. <laughs> Like at the end of it, like when the mutant shows up on the spaceship as they're escaping and the mutant just dies before he can go to rescue the girl and everything. It's just like, hey, I got out of time just to do nothing. Yeah. Good thing I saved you. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Morrow as Exeter is exactly the right kind of goofy (laughs) for his character in this movie. You know, like... Just that, that that slightly overwrought overacting that he was doing <laughs> is wonderful <laughs> in the role that he was in. You know, 
Yeah, and he has to kind of balance it because he's the nice one. Yes. Like, every, mm-hmm. like right. everyone else can turn it up to be a bit more mustache twirly. Yeah. <laughs> because because they are a bit shady, whereas actually they're being kind of sympathetic to humans and not you know not wanting to be a dick, complete dick to them. He's, he has to balance that a bit more, whereas everybody else can go, we are a superior race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I did, you know, once once it became clear that, you know, the, the plan was just not going to work. And so we're just going to, we're going to kidnap these two people and take them to Metal Luna with us. And they get there, and this is very clearly the very last day of this war. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. things are going very, very poorly. So, dude, meddling is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> like to the point where you have to wonder why, like you know, he, you know, Exeter, you know, brings Cal and Ruth, you know, into the throne room or whatever it is, and you know, you have to wonder why the guy's first question is, "Did you bring any uranium with you?" <laughs> no. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because that is literally the only thing that we actually needed you to bring back. <laughs> God, you know, Exeter, why are you so bad at this? <laughs> the irony is they would have their species would have actually continued going on if they would have just stayed put. Yeah, exactly. Well, I do like it. He tries to kind of do, for want of a better phrase, hard sci-fi ideas like the fact, mm. like you need to be kind of conditioned to. Um, Metal Luna's atmosphere, otherwise you just sort of, you know, just be crushed by the by the air pressure and stuff. Um, and the fact that it works for the Metal Lunans both ways as well, so mm-hmm. they need to condition themselves for that. And uh, while some of the stuff about sort of like uh, neutrino rays and stuff like that felt a little bit wobbly, at least it was, like, it's, for the time it felt like it might have the ring of truth mm-hmm. to it, you know. like It didn't sound like it was just made up. Yeah. Yeah, like, like the science sounded like it was it had some basis in fact, even if it didn't. Yeah. Which, like in, in some of these films, it's not even they don't even attempt it. <laughs> yeah, like one of the things that that calls back to it is you know, Will, as you as you said, that the metal Luna mutant just kind of falls down and dies, and a lot of that is because he it wasn't because they're going back to Earth, so they need to be processed to be able to with you know withstand it like they're being relatively zero pressure compared to what they're used to and the mutant doesn't have that so it just kind of dis- dissipates into mm. gas essentially because like the pressure there's just so little pressure that it, it just it, its body structure can't hold itself together um which is nice but yeah at the same time yeah, as you said dave they're talking about neutrino rays like yes the thing that just shot us <laughs> Pick up on some context clues, Cal. <laughs> but I did like the uh, like he's Cal's kind of sidekick who who felt like the quintessential sidekick for somebody like that guy could be working with Buck Rogers, Superman. Mm-hmm. Like you could have put that exact fi- figure, like played by that actor as the sidekick to pretty much anyone in any film at about this period. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't look out of place. Like he's just the sidekick guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing that I and, and I, it was, I heard his voice, and I was like, the reporter that Cal is talking to at the beginning. Oh yeah, uh, during his during his press conference, you know, I was like, you know, I'm a super scientist, and I'm going to jet my way to Los Angeles. Now, you'll excuse me. <laughs> and the reporter is like holding him up, and I hear his voice, and I'm like, that's Olan Sule. 
that's fucking Batman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I always forget what a kind of a weaselly, wormy, nerdy guy Ulan Sule is, <laughs> oh. considering that he's the voice. You know, again, before Kevin Conroy, he was Batman for like 30 years. Well, look at the Super Friends. Yeah. Right. Like from the 60s all the way up through the 80s, he was the voice of Batman. Right. If you watch him on a cartoon. Um, and it's just one of those little things like, oh, it's always fun to see him pop up and shit because he was always <laughs> popping up and stuff. <laughs> I mean, kind of go back to what Mike was saying about the fact that this was like a, but the action science guy was what they were always kind of trying to do. It always seems to be that they, Hollywood had a very, had a very kind of like picture. Like if you were a science guy, you were probably like an old doddery fellow with a lab coat. Mm-hmm. You're probably covered in chemical stains. <laughs> And so, but but that's not dynamic enough. So we need these very dynamic men to be also scientists, so they can believably understand the science as well as punching people in the face. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, it's kind of like the opposite of what Doctor Who did initially. So like, yeah, you had the Doctor who was the science guy, then you had Ian Chesterton who was the punch people in the face guy, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. while wearing a tweed suit. And so, like, the, like Cal, Cal Meacham is kind of like a fly pod accident between the two. <laughs> <laughs> but the film is also very forward thinking as far as, you know, scientists go, because we have, because Ruth is an actual, like, legitimate scientist, mm. as opposed to, like, a movie, any other movie, she would be like, oh, no, no, she's, she's Steve's assistant. Yeah. Who or the old scientist's to- daughter. Yeah. yeah, and said, like, no, no, she's fully a scientist. There's another female scientist at the freaking compound also. Mm-hmm. And you, you know what? They're just as competent as any other person in this film is, which is kind of competent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just as competent, which is to say, somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> like, you have that German scientist who was everything Hollywood tells you well, yeah, it gives you all the visual clues for scientist. The glasses, the balding head, he's smoking a pipe. He's German. Like, <laughs> like, like all you know, he, this guy is, is all the walking shorthand cues for scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just taking a second also, just to put some historical context in here, because I can't remember if the Manhattan Project had been declassified enough where the public would know anything about what was about it at this point. It's relatively safe to assume just about every single person in that room was either working on the Manhattan Project or they were working, or if they, in the case of the Germans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's the mid fifties. We're very much in the atomic age so that whole thing of you know we're we're very very interested in science these days the kids want to know more about you know the action in the action scientists you see so many action scientists in these movies at this point you know like all of these giant monster movies of the mid 50s have that that kind of cal meacham lead character in them so um yeah i can't like I can't think of another period in history where, you know, they're trying to put across this whole idea of scientists that can beat the shit out of, out of you guys. Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, but that's kind of a big part of what this is. You know, that was calling back to Yeah, it was this type of hero. And it was happening. 
was happening a lot in comics as well, wasn't it? Like, like the challenges of the unknown and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That was all very much kind of like, again, people in suits who punch science in the face. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Like it's not enough to be able to solve things with science. You also have to be able to punch shit. Science can get you where you need to go, but once you get there, you know, you're, you're going to need to shoot it. i've invented cold fusion and now i'm going to punch this monkey (laughs) even though i raided the monkey the monkey's the one who's wrong (laughs) but this monkey's a communist well it was the 50s now that we've punched the monkey is um (laughs) Does anybody have anything? Does anybody have anything else about this movie? I mean, I'm just going to also say something. I'm fairly positive that the people of Metaluna are outside just being dicks. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I would not be surprised if you know. Oh, this alien species is attacking us. I would not be surprised if they decided if they picked the fight and they were like, cool, awesome. We're gonna throw rocks at you from now on because <laughs> you were kind of, because you're jerks and you were like, hey, no, we're gonna give you these these TVs, and then the TV started shooting lasers at us. <laughs> Why would your TV shoot lasers at us? <laughs> Fuck y'all. So your 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 position is that the Metalunas deserve everything that's happening to them. I mean, no one deserves to be genocided. It does seem like the Metalunans have superior technology to their enemies, because when they're just sort of throwing rocks at the spaceship, like the spaceship's just zapping them out of the air. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like it's nothing. Yeah. Why don't they have a bunch of ships in orbit that can, you know, shoot lasers? Because that seems to be all they really needed. <laughs> but no, we're going to have tiny spaceships throwing rocks at stuff. <laughs> Wait, just... is... Is is asteroids based on this movie? I mean, <laughs> I mean maybe. I'm, I'm sure that there was. I'm sure they were. I'm sure it was in the back of their heads. I'm actually not kidding about that. <laughs> but maybe they could just like this little fleet of just interrosters circling the planet, just, <laughs> just, just zapping things as they go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems that they <laughs> they put all their eggs into one interrosser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like interrosters do everything. Yeah. <laughs> so why do we use the interrupt? We haven't got any more interrosters. Don't worry. That's ahead of the thing, though, is it? Just like basically sending somebody like a kit of a alien space machine. <laughs> so like, if you get to put it together, like you've passed the test. Like, like has there, was there anyone who didn't pass the test? And like, there's just like a pile of parts. And stuff and- <laughs> Well, they've had a go. It's just kind of beyond them. It just, just like smacked it together with hammers and tape. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's like like an interrosator, but it's just like just like covered in duct duct tape and scorch marks. Yeah, <laughs> so, so like Homer Simpson's barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> Put it together, but you had these random death lasers in there, so I left those out. I didn't. I didn't think those would be necessary. <laughs> That's the entire point. <laughs> so I could, so I could blow up the manual. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you print them that big of a manual if you didn't want me to keep it though? <laughs> and I'm, and the paper, and it's not even on paper. Like that must have cost a fortune to produce, and you just blew it up. 
it, it's an expensive brag, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you know how much I spent on that manual? I've just destroyed it. Couldn't give a shit. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're just gonna you're gonna recruit all these scientists and have them in the house, and you'll just blow them all up for it when you need to leave. <laughs> it's just like 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 lighting cigars on fire with the smoking manual. <laughs> Meanwhile, Brax and lighting his cigarette with burning bits of scientist. <laughs> We blew oh. up the cat. Oh, Brack. <laughs> it is silly and it's very easy to laugh at, but it does, like, it has the courage of its convictions. I'll give it that. Like, that you know, like, like everybody is playing this straight down the line. Like, it's, like, I don't think, this, like, if, it, if anyone had been winking at the camera a bit, I don't think it would have been anywhere near as entertaining. And the fact that everybody is kind of doing doing their serious acting game, rather than uh, yeah, just going oh this is a bit silly, we can probably just goof around a bit, mm-hmm. makes it makes it work. There, there is a level of earnestness that could, that only the nineteen fifties can bring to this kind of material. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, I don't think you could make any of this with a straight face now. No, but I do. I do have a slight question. Um, when I was Googling just images for this thing, because I was looking for more pictures of the mutant, um, <laughs> on the poster, it says two and a half years in the making. How is that a brag? Like, legit, I'm not taking the piss. I don't know how saying this movie took us two and a half years to make is somehow a brag, but maybe I don't understand 1950s I mean, Hollywood. Maybe, maybe the, yeah, the special effects are so epic and intricate that it took them two and a half years to make because, yeah. you know, the effects are so special. Okay, I'll go it's, with that. It's also a bold face. I mean, maybe that's when they started writing it because this thing shot, <laughs> uh, shot in like January of 1954 and released in June of 1955. Got yeah. it. <laughs> it took us that long to secure the book rights, you know. Well, that's probably, <laughs> honestly, that's probably it. I think it's that two and a half years is probably because I think the book came out in like 52 or 53. Oh, 50, yeah, it did come out in 52. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's just what, you know, it took, you know, it took two and a half years for, you know, somebody to decide to make this and then get the rights to make this. And mm-hmm. you know. yeah, I mean, I mean, like you say, Mike, whichever way you slice it, a film two and a half years in the making is not a great brag. Right. Yeah. Oh, and this was released on a double feature with Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> that feels a little unfair to it. If I... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it... But I can kind of see that because I mean, this is, I mean, you know, for you know, all that we we're talking about, this is clearly an A picture. You know, this is a prestige picture for for what they were doing. So the Yabin Costello movie would have been the B picture in this particular double bill, I think. Plus, I mean, that is legitimately a funny movie. Like that is actually a pretty funny movie. So it's not I mean, a gimme with faint praise. Yeah, I mean, as far as like Abbott Costello meeting monsters movies, I mean, it's it's definitely a step above Abbott Costello meet the Keystone Cops. I was only so afraid you can be of the Keystone Cops. Come on, Alex, they're here. Alex Rogan had a dream. You really are leaving here, aren't you? To be as far away from here as possible. You get your chance when it comes. You gotta grab it with both hands. 
it started with a game. You're gonna bust the record! But it wasn't just any game. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zor and the Kodan Armada. And then, one night... Centauri's the name. We have to talk about a matter of utmost importance. Step into my office. I've seen him come and I've seen him go, but you're the best, my boy. Light years ahead of the competition. Hey. Alex didn't find his dream. Hey, look out! Oh, dear. Hey. His dream found him. Where are we? Welcome to Rylos, my boy. A world on the brink of destruction. You were recruited by the Starling to defend... To defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. Of all the life forms, on all the planets, in all the galaxies... been chosen. Alex Rogan. Alex? I'm Alex. Is the last Starfighter. For every Earthling who's ever imagined traveling beyond the stars. Maybe there is a Starfighter left. I love you, Alex Rogan. The unforgettable story of one who made it. <laughs> the Last Starfighter. Okay, next up, we uh we followed this with The Last Starfighter. <laughs> because I will I will say this. I was like thinking, oh, what can we pair with this? There's so many like interesting ways this could go. And I realized, well, you know, we haven't done like a goofy. 80s sci-fi you know nonsense in a, in, a, in a minute you know especially you know a, a star wars inspired sort of thing we haven't done one of those in a while and i sat and i thought about it and it's like once you scrape all that stuff off this movie this is almost the exact same movie as this island <laughs> this is a movie where a, a, an alien race is having a war in which it's going very, very badly. So they test people from other races, and those that are kind of come, they kind of kidnap and bring them to their planet and sort of get get them involved in their in their war with them. It's just like, mm-hmm. huh? <laughs> <laughs> and this particular movie uh, takes place um, in a sort of a, a southwestern US trailer park where uh, Alex Rogan is a uh you know he's somebody that's he dreams of something more <laughs> he looks to the stars and know there's got to be more out there than just hanging around at his parents trailer park helping people you know fix their TVs and shit and he sort of takes his refuge in a video game called Starfighter, which it turns out he's really, really good at. So good, in fact, that he gets the high score 
which uh brings Robert Preston <laughs> in a in a in a in an AMC not quite DeLorean. <laughs> and he kidnaps him and takes him into outer space and says, Okay, you're so good at shooting aliens, we're gonna have you do it for real. Uh <laughs> kind of like a very eighties enders game thing going on. <laughs> that's exactly it, yeah. You know, we're going to put a robot to keep Catherine Mary Stewart busy and otherwise, you know, to kind of train you to how to shoot aliens. And Alex is like, no, thank you, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But he eventually decides that he's going to do that. And he they put him in a ship and they put him in a ship with Grig, who's a a, a lizard that kind of tells him, you can do it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's basically the movie. <laughs> you know, he becomes a, a, a top-notch starfighter pilot who takes on the entire Kodan rem- Empire all by himself. And uh, then he kind of goes back and gets his girlfriend. And, and, and that's basically it. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm missing anything too terribly important here. No. 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 So, I mean, I you know, why did I pick this one? I just said, because it's basically the same movie once you actually sit and think about it for a minute, which is really kind of strange. <clears throat> it is also a prime example of mid-80s Son of Star Wars, that 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 little bit of, of history where there were a lot of movies like this. And this is kind of one of the better remembered ones, I think. Mm-hmm. Was this anybody's first time seeing this movie? No. Will, oh, really? Will. Yeah, yeah. Right. really okay what did you think i mean this is a film that if 10 year old will had seen it i it probably would become my entire personality i probably would have just you know ended up going back and like trying to get like the high score in super mario brothers so i could go and you know beat up some some goombas in real life <laughs> but i mean seeing it at 39 it's it's not a bad film like it is a fun film, but I can definitely see I can definitely see kind of you know the cracks and problems with it, namely that oh yeah, so this is Star Wars, but they tore the serial numbers off here and there, and <laughs> oh, okay, this is kind of problematic with the with the robot guy, mm-hmm. and I don't want to know what he was trying to do to her ear, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a, but I mean, it, it's still kind of movie that I feel like if I if I'm just flipping through the channels and I come across it, I'm not going to turn it off. <laughs> it's it, it's I'll probably throw it on and do some while I do laundry or something like that. It's, okay. it's definitely like a a Sunday afternoon laundry film, which mm-hmm. honestly I think is still like a is something that you know more films could aspire to because it's just it's something you can throw on not think about it and then walk away afterward and you're like cool i enjoy that was fun okay cool dave how about yourself you've seen this before i have yes i've seen it a couple of times um this film is kind of weird for me because i feel like i should like it more than i do Mm -hmm. like in theory it ticks a lot of boxes but i think it's kind of less than the sum of its parts um like there's some great performances in it uh, mainly from the kind of veteran character actors, mm-hmm. sort of Centauri and Greg are both fantastic mm-hmm. performances. I like the makeup effects look really good, mm-hmm. and like the performances are usually pretty good. But I think kind of what lets it down for me 
is the space battle action stuff because mm-hmm. it is obviously you know one of the first films to do this with CGI. And I think the limitations of that really show because it's not particularly dynamic. Um, yeah, they can only do so much with it because obviously, like the processing power needed to create a lot of this was huge at the time. And while it's impressive that they did what they did, just in terms of sort of like building up to the big fight at the end, it's actually kind of lackluster because. Uh, Again, sort of chasing after that like Star Wars vibe. The model work would have done this in a much more satisfying way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, like even something like Battle Beyond the Stars, I think, had more engaging space battles than this on mm-hmm. like a fraction of the budget. And when your film's called The Last Starfighter, the starfighting is the least interesting thing about it. Um, yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of like. like the second half of the film is a lot of ju- just Alex and Greg in a cockpit with Alex occasionally turning his chair around to talk to him, mm-hmm. which is, again, isn't particularly dynamic or engaging. It all feels quite static. Um, well, it's like the stuff on Earth is actually quite good. I, I, I don't, I quite like the, the B unit subplot of this kind of robot who's actually just kind of having a shit time being Alex Rogan. <laughs> but he's, he's not enjoying himself. He doesn't know how, how to interact with anybody. Like he's like, he finds out that he, he's not there just to replace him. He's there to be a lightning bolt for other people, for bullets, essentially. Like he's there to get killed, which again, he's understandably displeased about. And and he doesn't know how to make interpersonal relationships work to the point where he just straight up confesses he's not Alex Rogan because he can't. Look, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what you want. I'm a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, like, there's like it. Like Will says, it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. Like, it's it's competently put together. Like, the makeup effects are really good. The like physical effects are really good, but yeah, I just for some reason I, I've just never really clicked with this. It's never like I've watched it a couple of times. I've never really felt sort of you know, yay! I, I want to own this. Or I want to watch it again mm-hmm. or, or something like yeah, it's fine, right? But it's no more than that for me. Okay, cool. And Mike, how about yourself? This is one I had seen, Lord knows how many times as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was. I know. I didn't have it on VHS. Maybe one of my friends did or something. Maybe it was on cable a lot. I don't know. This seems like a movie that would have been on cable a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I saw it straight through many times. Uh, This was the first time I've seen it straight through in a while, though. I tried rewatching it maybe a couple of years ago. Didn't get that far into it. It didn't hold my interest at that time, but it was like two in the morning and I'm like, I just need something to watch the last Starfighter, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I remember really enjoying this one as a kid, hence me watching it a lot. Not so much like Will was saying that 10 year old Mike would have been like, this is my whole personality. That was Star Wars and Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. But I very much did dig this as a kid. And so finally sitting down and rewatching it, I can absolutely see why if this is 1985, right? Four. And four. Okay. So I'm probably seeing this probably in 85 or 86. So I am seven, eight 
thereabout. I can absolutely see why I was into this thing. It didn't quite hold up like I had hoped, but I still really enjoyed the hell out of this. But mm-hmm. the takeaway this time for me was I never, ever realized how much this is Luke's fucking story. Mm-hmm. It's not even, and I'm not saying it's the hero's journey. It's, we have a kid who's 18, wants to go off to college. He can't, or the academy. He wants to just hang out with his friends. He can't because he has to fix things around the farm or the trailer park where he lives. He gets sucked into a space war. He doesn't want any part of it. The rebel base, Alderaan, this thing gets destroyed he survives he's the big hero i mean they just left out the space magic that's all they did because i think that would have been lucasfilm would have been like what, <laughs> what? <laughs> but yeah seeing it this time I'm like this is just a hundred percent luke and i get it as, as you said it's like we have to have the son of star wars movies it's like, you just have to um but i still did enjoy this one i don't want to make it seem like i didn't at all um it's just that was a very surprising uh element to to pick up this time i could absolutely get past the 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 digital effects we'll say probably because of some nostalgia factor if this was the first time i was seeing it like you will um i think i might have been like mm, that's pretty dodgy cool looking but dodgy but my the part of my brain that saw this when I was seven eight goes yeah but so what like I like Tron <laughs> that's like yeah. you know along the same lines so yeah yeah I'm glad to have revisited this one for for a lot of reasons you know so yeah yeah like yourself Mike I had seen this again probably almost forty years ago at this point yeah you know? <laughs> when I was a a real little kid and I liked it I remember liking it well enough i don't think i watched it a ton but i i definitely mm-hmm. watched it more than once and i don't think i've seen it since then i think this is my first time watching this as an adult maybe once or twice in the last you know however many years but i don't recall i, I know that i've had it on discs like i had like a disc that had like four science fiction movies on it and it had like dune and flash gordon and something else it was like one of those four packs yeah, and I had that, and I'm pretty sure I must have popped it in at some point, but I couldn't tell you for sure. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that struck me about this movie, and this is not a bad thing, but I think I think maybe one of the things is like why this doesn't click is that this movie is made for ten year olds. Mm-hmm. This is not a this this is a children's movie, not a bad thing. It's not. Or why couldn't this have been? No, it's that's not the movie they were making. They were making a movie right. for kids, and so based on that, yeah, I can definitely get behind what it was doing. Um, I will agree, definitely agree with Dave that the star fighting is probably the least successful aspect of the movie. But it was kind of remarkable to me just how it takes Luke's story from Star Wars almost verbatim. But it has it kind of going through this Spielberg filter. This the stuff in the trailer park feels very Spielberg, like very kids on bikes. Uh, I I did read in the trivia that it was originally going to be set in suburbia rather than the trailer park, and they deliberately moved it to the trailer park because so many sci-fi films of that era had been set in suburbia, like ET and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they just wanted to kind of like move it to like another kind of urban urban setting that wasn't just a, a suburb. Yeah. Um, and that worked. I think that that was a really great, a great move for it. 
but like that community i thought it was was really cool i really like that that's mm-hmm. not something you saw a lot of in movies at this at this time yeah i mean the thing that i watch like watching this now as an adult that that i really kind of take away from it is just the monumental awesomeness that are centauri and greg mm-hmm. they're both so good yeah you know I mean, robert preston is playing harold hill that's what he's doing here he's he's being given the opportunity to say you were the you were the music man <laughs> We're going to write a role that is Harold Hill in The Music Man, except now he's an alien. <laughs> oh, we got trouble. <laughs> Up there in Empire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was just fantastic. He was wonderful. I mean, like, the best Obi-Wan character that isn't Obi-Wan I think I've ever seen in a movie. You know? Like, it's so easy to kind of, you know, be very po-faced and serious and grim and you know the universe needs you, Alex Rogan. And it's like no, you know, it's like you know, the, he's just completely been bamboozled into doing this thing. That, you know, well, when you you find out that he's only doing it for the money, like he gets paid for finding star fighters. Yeah, and then when when Greg finds out that Alex is from a planet that's not part of the Alliance. Yeah. <laughs> so so basically, Centauri has just kind of hoodwinked some lower race into doing this. Yeah. For cash. <laughs> and Greg's just like, oh, hell no, 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 no you can't do this. <laughs> like, Are like, you pulling an Excalibur again? <laughs> <laughs> and like, he's, they're going like... Um, that's one of the things I like about Greg is like Alex is desperately trying to tell everybody that he doesn't know what the fuck is going on and he really doesn't want to be any part of it. And Greg is the first person who listens to him. Mm-hmm. Like, he finally, like when he bumps in, he bumps into Greg and Greg helps him up and then he just kind of like starts unburdening his soul. It's like, oh my God, this dude called Centauri is taking me off in this car and like, because <laughs> oh, I did this one at this video game and now he wants me to fight in a war and I don't want to do it. What the hell? And he's like, where are you from? Uh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, that dude over there. Right. <laughs> so, okay, we will fix this. I'm very sorry. Centauri, <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> and yet, by the end, Greg is still doing is doing the exact same thing, only with emotional blackmail of like, <laughs> okay, well, if only we had a last starfighter. Well, I mean, at, by that point, that's very much kind of like, like he is the last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. Like, like we've lost all the others. I would happily take one of those and send Alex home, but we don't have any others. Mm-hmm. Like, it's this kid or nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would prefer the guy with tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> Greg is so great. Yeah. And so especially great. in especially in these interactions with Centauri, when the two of them are just kind of bouncing off each other. Yeah. Like, like, the grizzled old war horse and the, um, the, the, the sneaky con man. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a minute to, 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 to click that, that Grig was the old man from OCP. Yeah. It took me a minute. Oh, okay. No. Yeah. He's, he's that, that's like, I know that voice. Why do I know that voice? <laughs> Wait, what? Greg yeah. is the old man from Robocop. Okay. Well, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had no clue. Yeah. 
Holy crap. Was, okay. There, there was a load of Star Trek alum in here as well. Yeah. Like, like, like Will Wheaton had is in this for a cup of coffee, but all of his scenes were cut, but you can see mm-hmm. him in the background of a couple of shots, apparently. Near the end when they're kissing, he's like there. Yeah. yeah. And like that, the, the first alien who's disguised as a hitchhiker is played by Mark Alimo. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we didn't catch that. And Granny. Um, what uh, the the main female character, her grandma, she was one of the Talosians of the cage. Wow. <laughs> okay. And then, like, I, I, I did not realize, you know, the director Nick Castle just who he was mm-hmm. until I actually googled him. It's like, oh, this film was directed by Michael Myers. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And then I saw, oh, and I never realized, oh, Michael Myers wrote Hook and Escape mm-hmm. from New York. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Uh, and, yeah. There's nice. quite quite a lot of pedigree in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I really feel like was a missed opportunity was, um, and I, I, she wasn't, like, she, she didn't have a lot of credits at this point, but. I really wish there had been more for Catherine Mary Stewart to do. Uh, oh, yeah. Maggie really was just kind of there to be the girlfriend. Yeah. She had very actual little to do in this movie. And Catherine Mary Stewart is so great. Um, yeah. Like, if you had asked me, like, you know, however many you know times ago, what's the first Catherine Mary Stewart movie we're probably going to do on this show? Hmm. This might have been, like, my fourth guess. <laughs> you yeah, know like i'm still surprised we haven't talked about night of the comet yet we're gonna talk about night of the comet at some point it's going to happen <laughs> you know but it just hasn't come up mm. you know between this and like the apple and and uh weekend at bernie's you know she's done a lot of genre stuff and somehow this is this is the one that and, and she's barely in it so it's always the girlfriend back home. Yeah, it's always entertaining to me for when we did that American shows for twice as bright, half as long. How often the guy who played Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's cropped up in stuff? As mm. a, as a he's it. He worked hard. Yeah. He does yeah. a lot of stuff. <laughs> again, at some oh, point we'll get Bernie again. <laughs> yeah, at some point we'll get Tammy and the T Rex in there. You know, Amen. Can we play with that? Uh, that um, what's the uh, pastor? No, no, the one with uh, Whoopi Goldberg and the dinosaur cop. Oh, Theodore Rex. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm just saying, if you get a chance to talk about Tammy and the T-Rex and anything, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, it's like former A-list star and dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Denise Richards, colon, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I think that it the film does kind of like stutter with is the freaking score like there are times there are times it's great but there are times it's like okay no 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 this is like this is way too whimsical like i'm almost Mm. expecting you know for there to be like a a comedy robot that's going to show up any second now yeah I mean, I guess, I guess that's that kind of 80s spielberginess to it Mm. yeah again this is like yeah because things like et to have a very whimsical score. I mean, uh, but having said that, it's John Williams who is also capable of bringing the kind of epic and heartrending stuff. But uh, if you've got a composer who's just grabbing for the whimsy, I mean, I 
happened to to notice uh, or, or look up in in my um, in my research that the person who did the compose like the, the composer for this movie also did the score for Angel. Just saying. Huh. All things come back to Angel sooner. All or later. things come back to Angel sooner or later. And oh, cheers, but not the theme song. But not the theme song. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one thing the score is missing is that kind of actually hook. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that real kind of uh, whatever it is, like what the Superman theme, the Star Wars theme, stuff, you know, something like that. Hell, even he, yeah. uh, Masters of the Universe had something, what musically that you could hang your hat on. Like something that the kids can like be like, like singing in the playground yeah. when they're playing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, what makes the Star Star Wars work? I mean, is John Williams the score among other things? Yeah. I mean, just imagine, you know, the dogfighting scene without the da 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 and so it's just like we have something kind of whimsical here, and it's like, okay, though the Death Blossom is cool, but would be cooler is if the score made me think it was cooler. Yeah, if the score worked with it, music can make or break a film like this. And I, I think it could, it definitely lacks for that kind of mm-hmm. score that you can really kind of like get to the adrenaline pump and you go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I do think this movie would be better remembered if it had better music in it. Cause you're right. I noticed as I was watching this that it's like, that's what this is missing. Like a, that, that would cover up a lot of what's going on with this movie is if the music was a little more. I was going to say a little more better, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's like, like we've seen movies where the opposite's been true, where the score's been amazing and has helped cover up the how terrible what's actually happening on screen is. Like, um, sort of, sort of the sorcerer immediately leaps to mind. Yeah, crawl. kind of like not that yeah. crawl's a bad movie, but the score is just so good. Yeah, it's just like like it really is like a good composer can really ele- like elevate something to make you kind of feel something alongside the visuals mm-hmm. and yeah like you say especially the death blossom scene because it's all really built up as this kind of like oh is this going to be this amazing thing and like it just sort of happens mm-hmm. like it it's kind of it's weird how little fanfare there is with it mm-hmm. yeah like they're trying to like build up the tension with that with that scene with you know we've got to wait we've got to wait till everybody's in the death blossom range yeah and the and it's just kind of like Oh, okay, we're just gonna yeah. hang on. Just, all right, yep, there they are. Okay, you know, hit the button and ready to yeah. get to go. And then, it, and then it spins around and goes off, and you just look at it going, oh, well, yeah, shooting all the ships. All right, well done. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, I, I just sort of didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> and I should, I should really care at that point. Yeah, like the death blossom, the entire thing with the death blossom, like that is like somewhat actually like influential. There's a character in Overwatch whose ultimate attack is literally just the death is called death blossom, and they do oh. that exact same freaking thing. Cool. Of just spin around and shoot and shoot a ton of bullets. Like it's done in so many movies where you have somebody who's just like spinning around shooting and everything. Yeah. And. Wait. Uh, Rocket Raccoon and Groot have stirred more emotions, sp- spinning in a circle, <laughs> shooting stuff than the Death Blossom have. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking of like and Iron Man too, like that. that yeah, scene at yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. And the actual movie, it's like, oh, yeah, guess this is happening. Sure. sure. <laughs> 
Well, I guess we've just taken out the entire armada. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. for the one guy. I mean, to be honest, like, I guess this is happening to be the subtitle of the entire film. <laughs> it's like they take out the entire armada it's like okay what do we got to do now well we've just got to hit that you know we've got to hit the the turret at the bottom of the other ship like, okay so we're gonna have to fly into the no it's right there <laughs> it's right there on the bottom you know it's even it's, it's even a different color so you can see it you know? yeah. <laughs> look at least have it look a, a bit like a bit different from the video game, make it so, so in some way challenging for Alex mm-hmm. to do. Just like, right. the, but the fact that because they use pretty much the same models in the game, which you, know, you understand they would because it's a simulation, but like you, you kind of want there to be like some kind of learning curve or some kind of challenge mm-hmm. for Alex. But the thing is, like, basically, as soon as you can see, he shoots it, mm-hmm. and it's like, all right, fine. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the like yeah, the space mercenary with his like. <laughs> Is eye patch that keeps flipping on and off, mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with no explanation of what it actually does other than just look cool. I yeah. mean, he's trying to see what their power level is. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that whole subplot with Zer. Like, I don't give a shit about this bloke. Like, who is he's, this asshole? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, I'm the son of an a... ambassador. I mean, honestly, like, it reminded me. Of of uh, is it Hux from yes. the Star Wars? Yeah, the the most recent movies. Like it, I'm like, was that actor referencing this character? Because that's what I was. That's the vibe I was. Yeah, he's, like, he's just a dick. It's the only one of the villains that lives. He just and he escapes because they needed a sequel hook for a sequel that has so far never happened. Despite people constantly saying, no, 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 we want to do a sequel. We want to make a. Make like Return of the Last Starfighter or Starfighter or something, and it's like it just never materializes. And I feel like at this point they might as well just reboot it or something instead of make a sequel. If you were going to do a sequel or a remake, whichever, this is so simple to do. Instead of a stand-up arcade game at a trailer park, wherever the next Starfighter lives, just make it like a super secret achievement in the Xbox game. Like, is, uh, we're uh, only uh, like 1% of the 1% of the 1% can get it. And that's boom, Starship lands. You're going off in space. Yeah. Here's Alex again. Oh, Alex is back. Who? Uh, yeah, you didn't see the original, but whatever. Alex is back. Just mm-hmm. make it an achievement instead of a high score. That's all you have to do. But the thing is, they've got Ernie Klein's already done that in the sequel to Ready Player One. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, oh, that see, is the entire book. Okay. See, yeah. I've not read or seen those. So, okay. But that's, that's Ernie yeah, Klein, though. That's yeah. just what he does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like his, he, his he, books he are basically... literally reference the book. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he basically just thought, fuck it, I'm going to rewrite The Last Starfighter. To the okay. point where he even points out he's referencing The Last Starfighter in the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why. I mean, as soon as I heard he's just doing The Last Starfighter, I thought, well, I don't need to read that. I've already seen The Last Starfighter. <laughs> But there, there is that stuff with kind of um, uh, drone technology these days, where they, where they actually are getting kind of um, gamer people to be doing it because, yeah, I, I think they're even kind of making the controls pretty much like the same to kind of gaming controls. Just mm-hmm. they make, yeah, it's like you, people can kind of, again, just sort of tune out to that, that fact they're killing real people and just flying this thing around and like uh, blowing stuff up. Yeah. But the thing is, like, of all the people to come back, like, Zer was in no way the threat. In this film, so him escaping to be the thing that comes back is just like what? So mm-hmm. it would like, be like if Star Wars, if uh, the Empire Strikes Back, if Vader died, but Tarkin was the villain. 
Mm-hmm. So not even Tarkin, just what well, the fellow who asked Tarkin if he wants to evacuate. <laughs> like, like that if that guy had survived to be in the next like film. The guy that Vader choked out in the Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, Starfighter 2 happens and it's like, what happens? It's Zur. Probably fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like he he is in no way any kind of threat at all throughout this film. So why should I be excited about the fact that he might be returning? Mm-hmm. But Dave, his his stick is really pointy. I mean that's true. <laughs> I've declared myself emperor, you know, even though you have an emperor already and actually the but I have a scepter like his. <laughs> He's like a he's literally the Nepo baby who's who was told who was cut off, so he decided, fuck it, I'm gonna make something of my own. And it's literally just no, you didn't. You just literally are still trading on your dad's name to get anything. Ah, oh, the Max Landis of space. <laughs> yeah, I'd like Max Landis, so I have no interest in seeing him again. <laughs> Amen. I just as a as a and as an aside here, one of the things I appreciated about this movie is at the end when we find out, you know, when, uh, what's his name? Uh, Greg is like, Hey, well, you got to stay on. You're the last starfighter. This is, you got to do this. And they go back to earth. There's no waffling on Alex's part. If he's going to leave earth and therefore not just his mom and his brother and his friends, but also Maggie, he does not waffle on it. He's like, I want you to come with me, but if you don't come with me, sorry, I got to go fight this fucking war because I'm not just saving Earth. I'm saving everything, and they need me. Like, he's not a dick about it. You know, he gives her the choice, and she says no, or she has she herself hesitates understandably. She He's had a little time to think about this. She's had 45 seconds, you know, and he starts going up the tube, right? And she's like, no, 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 wait, I'll go with you. That is, I did not like again, I hadn't seen this one else. So I forgot about that. And I completely did not expect that. But I really appreciated that the hero does not put love before saving the universe. This is the way it has to be this way. Sorry, come with me. And if you don't, I'll see you around, I guess. You know. I also like that scene. The only issue that I had with it is that it went on for way too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with Greg being introduced to everyone like he's the queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, and it's truly unnecessary. Like, we already had the climax of our film. Like, you you blow up the Death Star, and then you get a medal. You don't blow up the Death Star, and then Leia introduces you to every single member of the Rebel Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> but it isn't even that. It's that they go back to Tatooine, and we get to finally meet, like, you know, Cam and Wormy and, you know, the, the people <laughs> from the, you know club or whatever the fuck it is that he was supposed mm-hmm. to be like that scene that they cut out yeah oh and that's uh, my amperu and uncle lars uh they'd wave goodbye hi but they're skeletons <laughs> <laughs> oh wait no they were they were they were just in a protective cocoon the entire time mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah when did transformers the movie come out 86 six ah, okay because the ending of what's his face, Centauri being alive, that was clearly that was not in the script. That was a test audience reaction, I mm. felt. So I was wondering if it was a reaction to Transformers the movie, but obviously can't be. So okay. Yeah. Let's Speaking of the year, I gotta I gotta tell you this. Yeah, I did the research on this because I'm me. 
Ladies <laughs> <laughs> you know, and gentlemen, I suspect I suspect Shane has been away for a bit and Mike's had some time on his hands. <laughs> Damn it, Dave. <laughs> so, when the little brother's looking through the Playboys, yep. he goes, he goes, where the hell is June 83? And you can mm-hmm. see the magazine he's looking for. That is the June 83 Playboy. Mm-hmm. And when he opens it up, he goes, Yolanda, baby. The centerfold of that month was a woman by the name of Yolanda Eggers. Eggers? Egger. So the fact that they literally could have chosen any Playboy from any time, right? But they specifically choose the one from that month and the actual centerfold. It was just weird to me that they actually went that granular and didn't mm-hmm. just make up a centerfold's name and just choose a random issue and just claim it was the June 83 issue. I, I mean, they strive. Me. Thank you, Will. Thank you. <laughs> they, 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 they strive to get all the details right. Mike. Well, because it's one of those things where nowadays, with where everybody's pausing everything and making gifts, you know, you, you absolutely have to do that if you're going to reference a real magazine. You have to. But in 83, no one's doing, we're, we're still before the Simpsons kind of not, I, I'll, I'll say create, but they probably didn't, but the VCR pause gag or whatever it was called. You know, no one was doing that in 1984, 85, whatever. But this movie made a point to say, hey, in 40 years, when some dork decides he's going to look it up, it's right. (laughs) Well, thank heavens they accurately portrayed an underage child looking at porn. (laughs) The only only other way they could have made it more real is if it was in a forest. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It 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 was in the woods. I'd, I'd hate for it to be inaccurate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> also, fuck Lewis. Like that kid, man. <laughs> Can I go to space? Maybe someday. Which, once again, oh, cool. So, in, in your theoretical sequel, the kid would have been. Uh... Mm-hmm. Like, maybe if the sequel gets made today, Lewis's um, daughter gets recruit is the one who gets and lewis told his sister told his like family that his brother died i don't know man they were all there (laughs) (laughs) that whole community was there and like you know had it very carefully explained to them what was going on oh yeah they've all been shipped off to somewhere by the government now (laughs) (laughs) they're all in a facility it's the ending of elf the tv show if we saw five minutes later (laughs) <laughs> you know. there's a reason they're not around in the elf movie yeah mm-hmm. well i did love the like the cult, like, little community they had there and how weirdly invested they were in alex playing a video game <laughs> he's got to break the record all right for what <laughs> <laughs> if this were made just a few years later uh, maybe not a few years i forget the timeline here but this town and the town folk i think would have been streamlined a little more and would have been possibly ref, uh, referencing the town from Tremors. Because that is like <laughs> the best small town dining. It's like 13 people total or yeah. whatever it is. You know, they make a point of saying that. It's like, I I, I kind of wanted that because I love Tremors is like the perfect movie. It's not the best movie. It's the perfect movie. But take that town dynamic, insert it here, streamline a few of the characters. And you, you have this whole other side movie of these people. Tra- they all know Alex is a robot now. But no one's saying it out loud, and they're fighting bounty hunters and shit. There's, that's the movie you don't, you don't make a sequel, you don't make a remake. You do a sidequel, contemporaneous sidequel, and just use the Marvel 
de-aging technology to make it work, you know? So. So one of the last little thing I wanted to mention that I was going to mention with the other movie film, I absolutely love the Universal Studios logo. <laughs> like, no, it's one of those logos that are every single version of it, I feel like just works so well. Mm-hmm. Like I love the I love the fifties version. I like the thirties where it's like you know obviously like a prop. I yeah. love this one where it's like all kind of mysterious, and I like eventually you know the one where it's with the big fanfare and it's sweeping through space. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a good. It's a good logo. Yeah, and kind of lets you know what you're in for too. <laughs> and speaking of logos, never noticed this before. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's not. The, the in-universe Starfighter logo is just the Atari logo. Yeah. yeah. With the things that go up like that. I'm like, mm. that's got to be a reference. It's oh. only because of the video game component of this. I, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't totally. have thought of it at all. You know, Totally. Atari yeah. did have a plan to go and make a game like to the point where they had a finished product. And then they saw the movie and they were like, yeah, no, no th- th- this isn't worth our time. They, um, they did release what had started as a Starfighter game. Um, it just came out as, I think, Star Raiders 2. Um, and it did, it did come out eventually. They just, they just slapped a different name on it. Hmm. I'm surprised they haven't, like, because, like, you could do this now, just like a, as a rail shooter game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very easily. I mean, hell, or a smup, like, any way around, it would, it'd be just such a good game to, like, just kind of throw in, and you're like, yeah. On, and not to mention, you could just appeal to freaking nostalgia. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like the, the, the Gunstar is a pretty good ship design. I mean, like, like it yeah. looks better when it's not moving, like when it's just hanging in space. It looks what much once it's kind of in motion. It, again, the kind of limitations of the technology at the time kind of make it look a little, little bit too fluid, or just just kind of like it just looks after like someone's just kind of holding it with a mouse and just dragging it along rather than it actually flying. Yeah. yeah, but but as a piece of design, it's pretty solid. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, do we have uh, do we have anything else, or are we we good? I mean, I I think when we get to the point of deal, discussing the various appeal of the Universal logo over the years, we may possibly <laughs> have run out of main things to discuss. It's very possible. Yeah. It's Again, true. I don't want to tell anyone their business or anything, but. Like... <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm sure at some point we'll come up with more movies where people get kidnapped into space to help aliens with their wars. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Until then, though, we're dead. Channel 37's Midnight Movie Show was presented by Will Ackerman, Dave Probert, Michael Sims, and DJ Toland. The classics never go out of style. We'll always have stories of people whisked away to faraway worlds. I heard that's what the next Pitch Perfect is about. That's enough. Normal view.